Welcome to The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. Today, our very special guest is Chicago-based golf historian and photographer, Dan Moore. Amongst many other topics, Dan is an expert on the life and times of William B. Langford, the lesser-known Chicago-based golf course architect that created nearly 200 courses throughout the golden age of golf course architecture. From our society-wide favorites like Lasonia, Kankakee Elks, and Spring Valley, to some Langford influence found at places like Skokie, Glenwoody, Glen Oak, and Riverside, what I find so fascinating about Dan's work and his devotion to Langford and Moreau is the connection between the broader golf ecosystem, both public and private, and their links to our golf in the current day. Speaking of Langford's crown jewel of Lasonia, the Golf Society is headed to the sand dunes of central Wisconsin with host venues of both Lasonia and Sand Valley for this July's summer medal. I'm very excited that Journeyman Distillery is our official partner for this event, the summer medal. Journeyman combines a passion for world-class craft spirits, the greatest game of golf, and authentic Midwestern hospitality, creating a destination experience with a full-service, family-friendly restaurant, award-winning event spaces, distillery tours, and tastings, plus their 30,000-square-foot putting green, Welter's Folly, that contributes to the full immersion of making and creating at Journeyman. We have our Chicago Club Champions Dinner every single year at Journeyman, and the founders, Bill and Joanna Welter, have created a 100% family-owned business along with an experience that I just think can't be beat. If you are in Chicago and you're looking for some road trip destinations this summer, I can't recommend stopping at their distillery enough. It is just always so much fun, uh, regardless if you're a golfer or not. It is just a, a great experience to, to enjoy with friends and family. If you can't get there in person, you can check them out on journeymandistillery.com or see them at the Summer Medal in Wisconsin and enjoy some golf while we have some spirits. Without further ado, on to the show. Dan Moore, welcome to The Backdrop. Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, appreciate you having me out. Uh, kind of like feel like we're two guys on the patio of a golf course having a beer after a round. That's exactly the intention of this whole podcast. So let's keep that going. And I, I, I'm just glad the heavens range out this morning at, uh, at Skokie so that we could actually have this conversation. You know, it, it takes a lot for me not to go to Skokie. So here I am. Some bad weather, a little tired body, and uh, but we're going to talk William Lankford, who had a big role there. So let's get to it. That's the topic of the day. Starting with Skokie, I, I know that that was more of a a lot of imprints on that one. Do you? How much of it is Langford if you had to give it a percentage of the whole place? Uh, well, I think he added eight. I, I haven't looked at it, you know, directly in the last few days, but. At least eight to ten holes are original Langford holes, uh, a bunch of new greens that he put in. So what happened, is, you know, it started out as a, a Tweedy nine-holer, and then Bendelow came in and expanded it to 18, you know, not really using much of the original Tweedy. And then they got Ross to come in when they got some more land, and Ross created an 18-hole course that hosted the 1924 U.S. Open. Um, after that, they... Uh, were given an opportunity to add land to the Southwest and they, the North part of the property was pretty cramped. The course was actually kind of short for us open venue back then. So they brought in Langford in 1937 to 1939 in that area. Um, and everything on the Southwest part of the property, including the magnificent part three that's down there in the Southwest corners, the original Langford. And I think he probably did a lot of work on bunkers and the rest of the course as well. So I, I feel like in the aesthetics, it's Ross and Langford, maybe a little bit more Langford than Ross. Um, yeah. That would be my opinion. And does it, um, I haven't been in Chicago more than 12 years, so I don't know. Uh, I, you, the, Ross always has this prestige that follows it, and everyone's very proud of being a Ross course. Have, have you seen more Langford courses really embrace their Langford more in the last decade than, than they used to? Uh, a little bit. I mean, it's a mixed bag, frankly. Um, you'll see some that, you know, pay lip service to it, but then go really go in a renovation direction rather than a restoration direction. I think Skokie did a very good job of really melding the two styles a little bit. And they're not that different when you get down to some of the big bold bunkers, the undulating greens, uh, you know, 
Ross may have had more back to front slope with Langford having a little more internal undulation in his greens. So you see a little bit of both of that in the, in the greens that are there. And um, you know, as far as that question, I guess, like I said, it's a mixed bag. We can get into some specifics later. Without, yeah. Without, uh, well, I, taking a step back and kind yeah. of letting our audience get to know you a little bit. I, I first met you at the, uh, the Langford Shield, uh, right. named after the gentleman that we're going to talk a lot about on this podcast, um, up at Lasonia. And you got up and said some nice words about Mr. William Langford himself. And I just, I've been geeking out for probably the better part of six years now on uh, Langford and Thoreau and their work throughout the Midwest. So um, as soon as you were 15 seconds into your, uh, your speech up there, I, I was I was thinking about this conversation here today, Dan. So thanks for, for being with us. I, I want to start with what got you into golf history to begin with? Well, a, a bunch of things. Um, you know, as a kid, I, I learned to play golf in a big field behind my house. And so I would go out there and I would design my own golf holes basically in this field. And there was a cul-de-sac with a grassy area surrounded by you know, the street. And I, I created an island green. And that was before Pete Dye did it at TPC. You know, if you missed, you missed the green, you're in on the concrete. And then there was a baseball diamond that had a pitcher's mound. That was my, my humpback green. And I just would go out there for hours at a time and hit golf balls. And that's kind of how I learned to play golf. Um, we called it the Sears International Golf Course because my dad at the time worked for Sears Roebuck. Um, anyway, I mean, then as growing up as a kid, I played a lot of golf. I was a baseball player, so I didn't play on the golf team. Never really played competitive golf till I retired five, six years ago. Uh, but I, you know, was fascinated with the British Open, watching it on TV at Lynx Golf. And then as I got older, I got the World Atlas of Golf, that book, the original one from way back when, and, and Cornish and Witten. And I just kind of always had an interest in golf architecture. It just kind of evolved naturally. And I was a history major in college, so I was always interested in in history, kind of understanding, you know, where the world is today, you can't really understand it without knowing how it evolved, where it came from, and things like that. Um, it's kind of just my approach to things. And, um, you know, when I, after college, I had, you know, a young family, and we were living in Chicago, we would go up to Green Lake all the time, every year. Memorial Day was a staple. We'd stay at a little cabin on the on the grounds there, and I'd play Lasonia, if I get a chance to play Lasonia. And, you know, later, I think it was really with, you know, Rand Morissette starting Golf Club Atlas and started reading, you know, a lot of amateur historians on there talking about the history of golf and kind of, you know, that was really, that was my thing. I mean, I kind of didn't know it, but that's kind of what I was interested in all along. And then I started doing a, up some posts on there called Chicago Aerials. And I would go find the 1930s aerials and post them and make people guess what course it was. And that made me realize these courses are not anything like what they were back then today. The trees, the bunkers are changed, everything's different. And I just started digging into it. And eventually I felt maybe I could do a book about the history of golf architecture in Chicago. And I just started working on it. So I guess I just, that's just kind of naturally evolved from that interest that I had all since I was a kid hitting golf balls in the field behind my house. The, the, the leap from amateur golf historian to professional golf historian. Can you tell me what that's like? Because uh, I think you're the historian of record at at least one course. Uh, if no, I'm not mistaken. I've done done work, you know, some small work for a bunch of clubs, but the bigger projects so far have been uh, uh, architectural evolution report for Riverside Golf Club, which is Langford expanded to 18 holes. They they like my Langford knowledge and brought me in to really kind of document where where their golf course, you know, what it was, what how it's evolved over time, who's done what to it. And Dave Estler at the time was working on a restoration of the, at least the bunkers and you know, was continuing to work there on it. Um, so that was the first one. And after that, um, old, old Elm and I, I had, when I started going there, they were had a big bust of Donald Ross in the lobby and talking to their general manager, professional Kevin Marion. I said, you know, there's a lot more to that story than Donald Ross out here. He goes, well, you know what? We, so we just I started documenting to him the research I had been doing about golf in Chicago and, the role that Harry Colt had played there. So that kind of interested them and they engaged me to do a similar report and I wrote about a 140 page report for them. Luckily they had all their board minutes going back to 
1912, when the board started meeting informally to, to found the club, you know, he hired me and, he, you know, he said, we got the, I asked him the first question, do you have all the minutes? He goes, yeah, we do. So I, I show up for my first day of work on the project and I go, where are the minutes? Because they're up in the accountant's office. I go up there and he shows me the file cabinet, right? 1990 on. I go, okay, well, that's not going to help me much with what I'm trying to do. So I go back to Kevin. I said, I thought you said you had all the minutes. I go, yeah, I th I'm pretty sure we have them somewhere. And he told me to go find the head waiter in the in the restaurant because he knew where everything was. And we went down in the basement, started poking around the wine cellar. Now nothing in there. Some various different rooms that had old stuff in it. And then finally, behind the Christmas decorations in the corner of the basement of the clubhouse, big cardboard box, we open it up and it's all the formally bound, leather bound minutes of the club dating back to December 1912. So anyway, I digress. But um so I, got, I dug into that and they, they, all the information was there, how they had initially hired Donald Ross, that one of their members who was really well-traveled and spent a lot of time in England had heard that Harry Colt was coming to America in the uh, spring of, of 1913. And so they reached out to Colt as well. They got the two most renowned golf course architects of the day to come and spend, they spent eight days together on the course in April and Colt did all the drawings of the course. They staked everything out on the land. He did individual hole drawings as well as a course map, um, left those behind and left Chicago and went on to Pine Valley to help George Crump do a little course in, in New Jersey called, uh, you know, Pine Valley. So they got that report. They thought it was, you know, really helpful. And then we've decided to turn that into a book. So I'm working on that. We're going to try to get that out this fall. It'll be, uh, you know, feature my my history and, you know, the, of the golf golf course. I mean, it's kind of an interesting club in that it's a men-only club and doesn't have really any outside play of any kind. So we're, it's really going to focus just on the, the history of the golf course and how it's evolved over time and and the really 20-year restoration that they've been undertaking there to, to really take it back to what the original cult drawings show. So it's been an interesting process to be part of. And the book will come out this fall and we'll have a lot of my photography in it as well. Do you find that regardless of the audience, the work that you did and making that discovery of something uh, that's substantial, right? That the, the architect that everyone has accredited the course to wasn't just the architect. There was, there was a, uh, you know, Harry Colt involved. And when you make that, it's gotta be a really cool feeling for you yourself, right? Like finding diamonds in the rough. It, can you tell us what that feeling is like when you're in that process? And then also, <laughs> The, the, what you view as your true purpose of the work, you know, wh right. why it's important to write that book? Uh, well, for the old Elm book, I mean, I, I think it's important to understand the history of golf in Chicago. I and mean, it's probably, that's a more narrow book than the one I'm working on, on my, my own personal passion project, uh, which I'm just doing, I think, so people will understand the kind of architecture that exists in Chicago. A lot of the great courses were designed in the late teens and 20s during the golden age. And I think a lot of that aesthetic has been lost over time due to a lot of factors. And, you know, I think understanding the history of those courses will help clubs appreciate what they have. You know, a lot of those clubs coming up on their 100th anniversary. And I think if they understand what they had originally, they can in many ways make their golf courses better. I think Old Elm has gone from, a, you know, substantially narrow tree line golf course now to an open kind of spectacular spectacular golf course with a lot of huge open vistas across the entire property and and frankly probably plays a lot better than it did 20 years ago yeah. probably more interesting for the members to play as well more width more more ability to hit recovery shots and things like that you can't do on a tree line course yeah so the man of interest today is architect william langford as i right? said uh, how many chapters is he going to take up in this book of yours well, I'll just get one, but it'll be a pretty big one. So two over 200 golf courses from my count, or at least what I could find on. on yeah, that. I'm not sure it's quite that many. I mean, maybe if he, you know, talked about he did a green here and, a, you know, did a little work here and there. That's probably a smaller number. I didn't look at my spreadsheet you know, as I'm documenting them. I've really focused more on Chicago right now. So I haven't done the deep, deep dive that I'll have to do if I ever do a Langford book into his work in the rest of the country. But it's pretty extensive all through the Midwest and did a ton of work in Florida as well. And why do you think it is that um, the pair of, of him 
and and Thoreau were not as well known as your Seth Rainers and your Harry Colts and your McKenzies? Well, I think uh, you know probably the biggest reason is that they were in the Midwest. They don't get the attention that an East Coast or West Coast architect would get. Might be a little bit because some of the land and that they worked on was less than great. You know, Chicago is relatively flat in a lot of places. Uh, you know, so your courses they worked Lagrange, Park Ridge, Ridgemore, not you know, great properties to work with. Um, when they did get a great property, they delivered really great work. But I think a really big factor is you know, Lasonia was the the peak of their architecture, as far as I can tell. Uh, 1930 it opened. They worked on it in the late 20s. When it opened, Lankford was only 42 years old. So unlike Donald Ross, who was, you know, the peak of his career really spanned a longer time, and he had more opportunity to develop his craft and 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 you know really really expound on what he could do. Lankford, I think, if he'd had another 20 years of work under his belt, who knows? You know, I think based on the quality of the work I've seen, that he'd be right up there terms of um, recognition that everybody else is. And I, I think he deserves to be based on the quality of the work. Tell us more about the man. Um, you could probably talk for more than this podcast a lot uh, about him, but give us a little bit of background for those that are listening that may not be familiar yet. Yeah, so he, he was you know really the first Chicago-born golf course architect in the, in the area. Um, before that, everybody was either from Scotland or England or maybe somewhere else in the United States. So he's the first locally produced golf course architect. Um, he's born in the, on the west side of what is now the west side of Chicago. It was called Galewood then, but it's the Austin neighborhood of Chicago now. The family house is still there on Central Avenue. Uh, and he had polio as a kid. And um, his family doctor said he should take up golf. Golf had just started in uh, Chicago. He was born in 1887. Golf didn't exist in Chicago when he was born, but started up in when he was just uh, you know, five or six years old. And by the time he was 10 years old, golf was taking root. And, and there was a golf course being built by H.J. Tweedy just down the road from his house called uh, Westward Ho in Galewood, which is now Oak Park. Of course, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and they hired a pro from St. Andrews named David McIntosh. McIntosh came over from St. Andrews where he'd learned golf under old Tom. And that's who taught Langford how to play golf. And they became lifelong friends. I found some census records that indicate McIntosh was actually living in Langford House on Central Avenue at various times when the census reported who was living in, in the house at the time. And they lived together and were friends at uh, Glen Oak Country Club out on the west side. McIntosh was the superintendent there. and Langford did a little bit of redesign, I think, on that course as well. Um, so anyway, he learned to play golf uh, as a way of combating polio, um, became pretty accomplished as a kid. Good enough to play on three NCAA championship teams at Yale, where he studied to be an engineer. Um, after Yale, he went to Columbia University in New York City, and where he continued and got a master's in, in engineering. Uh, so he finally graduates from both of those universities, early teens, 1912, 1913, in that era. I, from what I've heard, he went to work in the mines of West Virginia and didn't care for that too much. And, decided he would pursue his passion in golf and pretty much just hung up a shingle as a golf course architect, wrote a, a, a pamphlet and a series of articles that get published in the Chicago Evening Press and published a little book called Golf Course Architecture in the Chicago District and just started, you know, doing golf, ma making golf courses. And that was 1914 when he hung, hung the shingle up. Mm -hmm. And he started, you know, started working in the Chicago area and then met Theodore Moreau. Moreau was working for a company called American Park Builders. Moreau was in charge of uh, construction at Evanston Golf Club under Donald Ross. And then I think they formed their partnership shortly after that, around 1919-1920. I worked under American Park Builders, a big uh, landscape architecture firm in Chicago. They went on to, uh, you know, to build and design Medina with when Tom Bendelow replaced Langford as the American Park Builders architect. Um, and then they, they started their own company and throughout the 20s, the, you know, Langford was the golf course architect and Moreau handled all the construction and the crews and things like that. So, and then, you know, a lot, of, a lot of work during the 20s and then the depression hit. The depression stopped uh, Langford's architecture career in its, in its tracks. And he survived the, the, the depression by running 
public golf courses. In the early 20s, he and Moreau took over a, uh, it was really like a, a dump. It was at the corner of Western Avenue and Addison. If you go to the Cubs game and you drive down West, down Addison to go to Wrigley Field from the highway, you drive right past where their golf course used to be. It's called Mid-City Golf Course. And they filled the dump with landfill and with, with dirt and built a golf course on top of it. It was extremely popular. It was open 12 months a year. Whenever you could play golf, you could go there and play. And in the clubhouse, they had a separate wing where they had all their drafts people working on their various projects all over the country. How many holes were there? It was 18 initially. And then they kept, they didn't own the property. So they were leasing it and they kept losing parts of it. So you kept having to redesign, but it, it stayed in operation from early mid, mid 1920s to the early 1950s. Wow. There's a, an article in the Tribune from the 1950s with a photo of Lankford locking the door to the mid city clubhouse for the last time. Bill Condon, who was a famous uh, sports writer, Bill Langford's locking the, the door to the Mid-City Golf Club, where he's played probably 2,000 rounds over the last 30 years. And kind of interesting anecdotes. But he also managed Glenn Woody for a while. And I think Glenn Woody, you know, Harry Collis' original design, but probably has a couple greens that Langford designed down there when he operated in the 50s. And then the Twin Orchard Golf Club, he designed their original course. When they left where it was located, which became O'Hare Field, uh, hence the name Twin Orchard, Ord. Um, so he managed that for a while in the 30s and 40s after Twin Orchard moved farther north. And uh, that was called the Bensonville Langford Lynx. So uh, a big part of his career after the Depression was operating public golf courses and supporting the public golfer. He also, uh, they formed a daily fee golfers association in Chicago that set up tournaments, ran tournaments for local public fee golfers. And he also served for, I think, a couple decades on the USGA Public Links Committee, advocating for the public golfers in that area as well. But, you know, after the Depression, he continued to work and did various courses around the country, a couple in Tennessee, and you know, did a lot of probably redesign work here and there. I, If I were to be presented with a Depression and, and figure out a way to get me through it in golf, I wouldn't think daily fee operation would be the ticket. Must have paid the bill somehow. <laughs> Kept the lights on, right? Yeah. Uh, tax credits, perhaps. I don't know. But um, yeah, know. He, he, it was something I wanted to ask you about, his his uh, devotion to public fee golf. It seemed like that was a theme throughout uh, his career. Where do you think that came from? Um, hard to say. I mean, he obviously came from a you know fairly wealthy background, went to Yale and Columbia. I don't, I don't really, can't really say how it, how it came about, maybe just a business opportunity and then that's the way it evolved. But, you know, his, I, in the process of nominating him for the Illinois Golf Hall of Fame, I got to got to, in touch with his granddaughter, who still lives in Chicago. And she told me that supporting the public golfer was one of the things in his life that he was most proud of. So it clearly was important to him and something that he, he you know, really was engaged in his whole life. Besides playing golf, he continued to play golf into his 80s. And I'd found a, an article that he made a hole in one in his 80s and playing a, a par 54 course in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. So he's a guy who lived his entire life in golf. That's really what he was all about from, you know, polio as a kid through his businesses and then continuing to play into his 80s. He, the, uh, his design style. Let's, let's right. dive into that a little bit with um, our friend, Andy Johnson likes to say that, that him and Moreau were maximalists. Um, would you, would you kind of agree with that moniker for them? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think clearly for the era, uh, they adopted the latest in engineering techniques and, you know, this powered equipment golf courses before the mid teens were built pretty much with horses and, and guys with shovels and guys leading teams of horses around to move dirt around. Uh, they adopted the steam shovel and the bulldozer and things like that that allowed them to do more significant cut and fills. But, you know, I think maximalist, yeah, sure. The features are big and bold. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about Lasonia. I would just use that as an example because that's what most people are probably, the, your audience is probably the most familiar with. And I would say, sure, it's, it's big. Um, you look at the sixth hole, for example, you stand on the hole, the six, 16, you're looking down this hill and there's a massive bunker short that hides the entire landing area for the hole. It's a 420, 15, 420 yard 
car four, goes down a hill into a ravine, then the green comes back up. And this big bunker is built there, but it fits into the landscape beautifully. It just, it's on a scale with that vista that just works. So maximalist, yeah, it's big, but it's also, I think, for a highly engineered golf course, very natural looking. He took, I think he took a lot of care in where he placed things to fit them into the landscape. For example, the second hole was saying, you, you, you're on the tee, it's a blind drive up a hill. There's two big bunkers kind of splitting the, the, the area in which you hit your drive. And there's a walkway, a pathway between the two. And if you're a walking golfer, like I have been most of my life, um, you walk up through those, that pathway through between those two big landforms. And you see the, the dairy barn that was there from when the property was the estate of Victor Lawson, the publisher of the Chicago Daily News. It's a huge, massive dairy barn that dates back to the late 1800s, I think. So he took care with where he arranged things. A couple of the greens at Lasoni are lined up with these towers that are in the distance. Yeah. So yeah, I think big, bold, but at the same time, strategic. Yeah. Um, nothing was done just to be a big engineering project. They were always there to serve the landscape. And I think, you know, he built golf courses that were pretty natural in terms of how they play. He would put move earth to build greens and build bunkers, but the rest of it was left alone. They didn't have the money or the, the ability. So you'd have to take advantage of all the natural features. Every course I go to, it's routed over the natural landscape, you know, really, really well. And then the bunkers are there to complement the natural flow of the land. And they're often built in into the landscape. So they line up with the horizon or they line up with the green you're hitting to. And they're, they're, you know, kind of artistically melded into the landscape. So I guess maximalist, but, you know, always with a purpose and always done artistically. And it seems that um, like many architects, the era at which they built the golf course matters uh, greatly. So it, in the case of Lasonia, 1930s. Uh, when, when did the steam shovel become their tool of choice? I'm guessing it wasn't for his entire career now, was it? Well, you know, there's not much documentation on the early work, um, but, you know, they started building these bigger landform bunkers in the late teens. Um, he had the engineering degree. Um, there are ads from the early 20s that show the equipment, right? Um, so I think, you know, probably pretty much from the start, maybe not the very, very beginning, 1914 to 1917, maybe not. But by then, I think, you know, they probably were, you know, budgets were getting bigger, the roaring 20s, the money was flowing a little little easier than it had been. I, so. I grew up on a 1918 Langford called Portage Country Club in okay. Akron, Ohio. And there's there's two private clubs in Akron, and uh, they're both Langfords of the same time frame, Farallon and, and Portage. And, and both of those courses were much more of what you just described, where they really just worked with the land around them. So th that maximalist moniker that most people that play Lasonia kind of uh, relate to them, I, I didn't see it. I saw a lot of the same naturalism of, of the courses right. I grew up on, where it was very green to tea, transition oriented, and right. seems like that was always there, but he probably got, as we all do, we get a little more confidence in our career as we go on. <laughs> For sure. We're we're probably going to stick with Lasonia for a little bit longer because we're headed back there for our July summer medal. Uh, it's our our final round. We'll be coming down the stretch to to crown a summer medal champion for our golf society. And yes. I'd love to hear more about what you know on the volcano hole, the seventh. You know, we've heard the rumors of the box car buried underneath. Uh, sounds like something that could sell a lot of green fees, but. Uh, is there truth to the boxcar buried underneath that green? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's the, the management there has put up a plaque, kind of a little uh, explanation of the boxcar hole, and they have a whole story that goes along with it that a local um, individual, I don't know if he was a farmer or something, but he dragged the boxcar down the road and put it there. <laughs> Uh, I've researched it. I've tried to find references in the literature that you know, I found articles about Lasonia from the early 30s, and I there aren't any references to it. So I could be a myth. It could be true. Somebody needs to get out there with some x-ray or whatever type of equipment you would use these days to do a little forensic digging 
and find out if it's true or not. Yeah. I, I don't know the answer. It's a good story though. There's probably not enough of us to, to get Craig <laughs> Holtzman to dig it up and give us an answer, but maybe. No. Uh, do you have the, the, just in the few years that I've been, you know, introduced and in, in going to visit Lasonia, I've seen improvements of, you know, this slow uh, return to, to what it is, but it sounds like it's been pretty good for a long time. Uh, what, what has your impression of the improvements that the team has made out up there been, right. and, and what would you like to see happen next for Lasonia? Um, well, I don't, when did you start going there? Let me, let me, uh, probably, I guess, five years now, four or okay. five. Well, I started going in the 1980s, 80, mid eighties. And at that time, a lot of the holes were tree lined. The superintendent there who was there for a really long time. I think his name is Tom Spaulding. I found a, uh, an article from the sixties saying how he was planting trees because the site was so windy that they needed to block the wind. Okay, well, <laughs> anyway, um, so for example, the eighth hole, which is a short par four, 320, you couldn't see the green from the tee because there were so many trees down the right side. I think the renovation, you know, that was true on a lot of the holes. There were a lot of trees everywhere that weren't there originally, that are in the 1930s aerial, that had done what trees have done to a lot of golf courses in Chicago, which is narrow the golf course, take away vistas and views that were there. You know, and narrowing the golf course on the Lankford is, it's not the design intent. It should be a much wider than, than and most courses we play today. You know, 30, 40 yard fairways are the norm. His were probably more like 50 and 60 in a lot of cases. Um, but that hole in particular took away, you know, you, you're, people get tricked into trying to hit down the right side of that hole. And it's heavy fescue over there. And if you hit over there, there's a big bunker that you got to hit over to a, a perch green. And even in the fairway on the right isn't the best place to be. The best place to be is as far as you can go, straight down the left side of the fairway so that you have an 80-yard 80, 80 shot directly up the opening, the, the mouth of the green. Um, and you've got an, a good angle into the right-hand pin, the left-hand pin, the back pin. You don't have to go over a bunker to this perch green. So you get a little more leeway to play your shot less intimidating but i see so many guys get stuck on the ride and then they're short and they're in this bunker and they can't get up and down it's rest next to impossible so uh so the tree removal ron force came in uh pretty much just gave recommendations on a couple of things so back back then as well um for example the 10th green the 240 yard all world par three um, probably has a 6,000 square foot green, maybe bigger. I don't know. Pretty big green. You could probably fit three Pebble Beach greens onto it, for example. There was probably 15 to 20 yards of fringe on that green back back in the 80s. They're just, you know, mowing patterns. Can't cut it. That, you know. So a big part, of, and every green was like that. That was probably the worst example. There was probably 10 yards on every green where it was fringe instead of green and you lose a lot of pin position. So that was a big part of what Ron recommended. Let's recapture the green surfaces, take them out to the edges. The fill pads were all there. Thankfully, you know, the Baptists took it over out of the depression when they went bankrupt and just left the golf course alone. Golf wasn't their mission. They had a different mission. So, you know, we're, we're the beneficiaries today of the fact that they just left it alone and it really didn't get changed other than the trees and, you know, the maintenance practices that, had, had the impact of narrow, you know, narrowing the fairways and allowing those big areas of the green to get lost. So Ron said, let's widen the fairways back. Let's take the trees out in most places and uh, get those greens back where they need to be. And that was a big change. And then Craig Halton came along. It was still managed by and run by the American Baptist Assembly until four or five years ago. And Oliphant Golf Management, Craig Halton in particular, convinced them to hire them to, to manage the golf course property and the restaurant. And for the first time in history, allow alcohol sale on the property, which you couldn't do. We'd go there and camp on site. They had a little campgrounds down there to hide our beer because it wasn't allowed. So that, that's, but it's allowed them to have a viable business operation now. They have the two golf courses, the restaurant's extremely popular and you know alcohol sales help support what they're trying to do. And First couple of years, they were having some some real turf issues on the south end of the property on the back nine, where the 14th green 
13th green are located. And those were the two areas of the course that even originally in Langford's original design were kind of areas that had a lot of trees. And there were even more trees planted than were there originally. I have an early photo of the 14th green, pretty wide avenue of play. By the time we were playing it, it was pretty darn narrow trees. You could probably not even get to the edge of the, the green without hitting a tree back in 1990 or so. So with those greens really hurting, Craig decided just let's go for it take all the trees out. And it had an astounding impact aesthetically on, on the look of those two holes. The 13th green now is up on top of the hill, the 560 yard par five that goes up the hill. The left bunker was gone. Um, and you, you stand down in the fairway now, you can see the 10th green on the right, 13th green that you're playing to, and the 14th green on the left. You couldn't see any of those other two greens back then until all those trees came out. So I think it was huge aesthetic improvement just in terms of the look of the golf course. But then the turf on those two greens is now way better than it was. So a win-win really in a lot of ways. So I think those are the big changes. And uh, as far as what else can be done, there's just, I think it's mostly in the area of tweaking. It, you know, it has really old irrigation system. And I, I don't get into that part of it. That's really the infrastructure of the golf course, but you know, it limits what they can do. Um, the bunkers could, they've improved the bunkers dramatically in the last four or five years. There's still many of them that don't have sand that just were allowed to grass over over the years that could be brought back into play. Um, there's a cool section between the 11th fairway and the 13th fairway that on the original plans was, you know, kind of a joined fairway. And there's some bunkers in there that really aren't in play, but they could have the, the, sand put back into them and you could you know, combine those two fairways. And I think it'd be a pretty cool look. Other than that, I mean, just, you know, continuing slowly, gradually improving the maintenance and they're doing great, I think. Are the greens, I've had this discussion with folks up there that there still is a fair amount of fringe, you know, yeah. even though they've expanded them considerably, it sounds like, could, could you, or would you say the original intention is for those to be even further out to the you know, once you get to kind of the bunker face walls almost that they built. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you got to think 1920s, they weren't cutting grass at three, three different levels. There was probably rough that was allowed to go pretty long between cuttings and yeah. fairway level and green level. And that was probably it. You know, so yeah, I would, I would think those greens went all the way out until you hit the edges of the slopes. And then the edges of the slopes were hard to maintain because they're pretty steep. Those were probably pretty, pretty uh, hairy back in the day. They're massive. I mean, I just, yeah. of all the places I play each year, Lasonia have some of the largest greens that I regularly see. Right. And that's, I think, true in a lot of the places, you know, smaller greens in some locations, but, you know, the golf course that's closest to my house here in the West Ridge neighborhood of Chicago is Bryn Mawr Country Club. Ron Forrest, who worked at Lasonia, also did some work there recently. And, you know, unfortunately, I think those greens have been modified over time, but the green pads are still the same size and they're pretty darn big as well. It's for me, my visit to Lasonia. Uh, and when I was a kid, if you told me where I was playing with Langford Moreau, I would say, you know, where are they? Where, where's their bag? I, I don't, you know, who know who these guys are, but um, right. I go there now and, and uh, after diving into their courses and their work, it makes me feel like a kid just because it is so bold and so big. And, uh, you know, when you short side yourself there, you're, you're not going to see the, the, the bottom of the flag stick and yeah. it, it's, it just gets my imagination going. I love that course so, so much. Well, I think, you know, it's just a variety. I've played the golf course now, I don't know, hundreds of times and I played last Sunday and it's still thrilling to play. It's still thrilling to hit some of those shots and the, you know, the diagonal tier on the sixth green the pin was down below the diagonal on Sunday. And that's just such a great shot to try to thread one in there. And then another day it'll be on the front, right. And try to get it close to that one without having to hit short and go 50 yards down the hill. And then just in the hitting a shot to the boxcar green is always fun. And that's yeah, it just goes on and on. The par fives are all pretty interesting, short, long in between, and, you know, try to make your score on that sequence between nine and 14, where you don't play a par four. You play five, three, five, three, five, three. Where do you see that? What a routing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Barely anywhere. And you don't even realize it because the variety of, of shots you're hitting in there, you're hitting a driver or a hybrid or a three wood, depending on which tee you're playing on the 10th, par three tenth. 
Yeah. Then you're you can reach the eleventh green in two on a par five. So <laughs> you had a good drive and get down the hill, and you might even have an iron in if you're, you know. Yeah. Right. So the, uh, if we made you pick a a favorite, could you? Favorite hole? A full hole of Sony? Oh, I think the sixth hole was fantastic. Yeah. Mentioned it a couple times already. Just the scale of it, the green. How you it know, pinches the, in on the right. Pinches in. You know, oh. you, 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 there's a principal nose bunker uh, on the left. If you get out there, um, you don't even see it from the tee because the big, big one I was talking about really blocks the view. So you have to know where you're going off the tee. Like the, the old saying, you know, holes only blind once. Um, you, but you know where to go left edge of the green or, or right of it. Um, if you hit it too far, you're going to be in that bunker and good luck from there. Never take it far enough. Right. Yeah. And you know, it, and you stand at the 150 marker on that hole and you look at the green and it looks dramatically downhill and you go stand on the green and you look back at the 150 marker and it looks downhill again. I go, what's going on? <laughs> and I looked on the topo map that's in the clubhouse. There's only five feet of difference. Yeah. But it seems so downhill because there's a big ravine between the 150 marker and the green. So as your shot, if you're short of that green, it's playing like an uphill green because it hits, hits into the hill and goes back down. So even though it's a downhill shot and, you know, the math is it's downhill, but plays like an uphill shot in some yeah. ways. So I know I think it's just it's a hole that's brilliant and it fits into the landscape. You stand on the tee and it's just it's out there in this big expanse. Hardly any trees until the till you're off the golf course, and it's just, just uh, I don't know, it's exciting. But I don't think there's a bad hole on the golf course, the entire golf course. I can talk about the third hole, the bunker on the inside of the dog leg. You could find a better example of a bunker on the inside of a dog leg and how it works in conjunction with the angle of the green. Let me know. Yeah, that is a very underrated hole. Yeah, that's yep. another great one. Yeah. Uh, we have so many notable restoration projects that people get get excited for, whether it be uh, William Flynn or Tillinghast or Charles Banks, uh, Seth Rayner. Why, why don't you think we we hear um, all these of the two hundred or so number of golf courses that are William Langford that I, I, I've seen it? You know, people he has a following. People see the courses and talk about. It. Why don't you think that those have given been given their shot at full? restorations even his crown jewel of lasonia seems to have this slow restoration what, what do you think it is that um it just isn't happening for for his courses like they are to the others well i think it's the lack of recognition like you talked about they're not as well known as the donald ross they don't have the big name cachet although i think that's improving um a lot of people recognizing them tom doe calling him the probably the most underappreciated architect of the golden age right um Hopefully promoting his work more will help. Uh, maybe this podcast will help a little bit. But, you know, there, there are courses that could be, there hasn't been a real signature restoration yet. Yes, Lasonia is taking time and it's really good, but it's still not at country club level, you know, restoration, I don't think. As good as it is and as much as I love it, I, you know, I think it's fair to say that. It's a public golf course and it has its constraints. It's in central Wisconsin and has economic constraints because of that. Um, and there are clubs like Butterfield here in Chicago, which is a magnificent property that for some reason just didn't go there. I, you know, they had a, a renovation, I guess. They called it a restoration, maybe on some of the documents, but it really wasn't at all renovation. So I guess we're waiting for the next one. It would be a, something I would love to be part of. I mean, I would love it if some club would come to me and say, help us understand William Blankford. You've seen probably as many of his courses, you know, as much about them as probably anybody out there. There are probably some others that know as much as me, but, um, you know, I've you kind of made it, able. made it, you know, in a passion of mine to know as much about him as I can. And, you know, I love, love the work, everything I've seen, even the little spring valleys and Kankakee Elks, uh, which don't have any money to do a restoration. Obviously they're just, you know, low budget public golf courses, but there are some big clubs out there. Um, there's one that's going to be on TV this weekend that I think would benefit hugely from a Langford restoration called Wakanda Golf Club, Des Moines, Iowa. The seniors will be playing there. Senior Tour has been there the last couple of years. Um, it has all the classic elements of a Langford course. The greens have probably been softened over time, uh, but the earthwork bunkers are all there, many of them in the trees. But the, the guts of the golf course are still there. The original holes are all still there. Um, and it's a fantastic property. Maybe the best property I've seen a Langford course on. 
And you know, if they had the the vision to to take that on, I think it could be just an incredible, incredible golf course. If you were able to hand select one course of Mr. Langford's to, to receive a full restoration, what would your uh, what would be that most deserving golf course for you? Well, Wakanda probably because it has the best property. But uh, I grew up in Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, suburb of Milwaukee, and even though I didn't play on the golf team other than one year, we the golf course that the high school used for their the team golf was Ozaki Country Club. And it's an original Langford Moreau from around 1922. And that one too is a very nice property. Um, it's just down the road from Milwaukee Country Club, which has gotten a lot of restoration work over the years. You know, Hugh Allison project that Doak and company have, Bruce Hepner in particular, have helped, um, you know, restore a lot of the original Allison. Uh, Ozaki has the original greens. It has a lot of the original earth, earthworks. It could be done. And I, that would probably be one from my personal point of view, having grown up near, near there. And I'd love to see that one come about. It would be a very cool one to see. And I think, you know, it's, I think a great routing, some great golf holes, some really nice greens. It could be a tremendous golf course too. Not that it's bad now. It's pretty darn good right now. I mean, that's part of the problem. The members get used to it and that's what they like. And a lot of people like trees, you know, well, you're, you're the guy that will know when those come their way. So right. I'm, I'm just going to throw my two home hometown courses in the mix, if you don't mind. Right. I haven't seen those, Fairlawn or Portage. I haven't seen them, so I, I can't speak to them. Let's make a trip. I uh, grew up at Portage. There's a lot of rolling hills through some big oak trees that there could be a few less of. But uh, there's, there's so much playability and strategy there. And then this Fairlawn, Dan... It runs through ravines in a way right. that uh, you have kind of whiffs of shore acres and, okay. and perhaps. And it's just road trip of, Clover, Clover Nook in Cincinnati too. We have to go see. Perfect. <laughs> Any others uh, in between there? He's got a lot in Indiana too, obviously. Right. Yeah. Well, Harrison Hills has you know gotten some touch ups and they you know added a Tim, Tim Lady Nine to it and Culver got a a restoration. I haven't seen it since the restoration. So. Max and Cucky, I have never been to. Um, but there's one in Florida that I have a bunch of old aerials of that just blows people away when I show them the aerials. It's Eglin Air Force Base. It was originally called the Country Club of Chicago at El Valparaiso, but it's in the panhandle uh, of Florida, and there was sand everywhere. No kidding. <laughs> and the routing is through hills, and there's a couple of ponds and little lakes, and it's incredible. But owned by the Air United States government and the U.S. Air Force. And I don't, just don't know about the, how possible it would be to do that one, but that one would be unbelievable. And then we could do a the Lido treatment on either Acacia, which the area looks fantastic, was down near LaGrange here in Grange, Chicago, right, and then yeah. Key West Country Club on the, in Key West, Florida, also looked fantastic. Well, you, you'll be busy. Once all the restoration plans start coming through, people will be knocking on your door. Quite <laughs> well, even, you know, if somebody, the right person could get the owners at Spring Valley to sell it. I think that could be a tremendous members golf course as well. Oh, or even spring. a great golf course for the public to play it rather than $20, $60. How that, because uh, as scruffy as it can be, it already holds up to expectations. I've never had anyone disappointed that we've sent there from the golf society, right. Spring Valley. Yeah. If you can overlook the limitations of the maintenance, the routing and the golf shots you're required to hit are really good. Really, really good. Um, the last question for you on, on Langford and Moreau. So just their legacy today. I mean, we're obviously talking about it because we're both big fans of their work. Um, but what do you think their legacy is uh, for, for our modern day? Well, you know, Obviously, their their role in support, in promoting public golf in the Chicago area. Chicago is known as one of the the greatest public golf cities in the in the country, and I think they played a big role in that. They were they were the face of Chicago public golf before Joe Jemsick and you know the Coghill family before the Joe Jemsick. Um, so I think you know that's a big thing um, supporting the public golfer. But I think you know also the impact he had on Pete Dye. I mean. Ron Witten tells the story of when Pete was working in Wisconsin on the Kohler properties that he kept calling Ron up and saying, you've got to see this Seth Rayner I found in Wisconsin. <laughs> He's talking about West Bend Country Club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, you know, Pete's wife grew up on Max and Kucky. So, um, you know, I think that style had a big impact on Pete. They grew up in those, he and his wife, you know, played Max and Kucky a lot. And he kind of internalized that style. And, and you see a lot of the same similar, you know, kind of shaping and features, but taken to a pretty different level. You want to talk maximalist. Okay. There's your maximalist. Right. Right. <laughs> And, and not a naturalist. I think Blankford was much more natural with his maximalism than, say, for example, Pete Dye is. Mm-hmm. Moving off of Blankford, you mentioned Lido. I I know that you've been involved in that proce- uh, process and, and project. What are you most excited about once that gets underway? We'll be there as part of our summer medal, but you know we're probably just going to be peeking at the work that's being done and not able to obviously hit any shots, but what, what excites you most about bringing back Lido to central Wisconsin? Well, I'm not really that involved in it other than I'm going to be a member. Um, but I know Peter Flory uh, quite well, a good friend of mine who's introduced me to Hickory Golf in the last year. Um, he shot a 65 with Hickory's at Lasonia last summer, by the way, and I was playing with him, so I saw it. Unbelievable. Even is though we're it, playing 5,900 yards, it's still quite a quite an accomplishment. I heard his his handicap with Hickory is better than his handicap with his game. Could be, could be. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Anyway, um, you know, I think it's, you know, as I'm founding member. I grew up in Wisconsin. So I, you know, the year I retired 2014 is when Sand Valley came along and I jumped on the opportunity. So it's been kind of exciting to see the whole process. Really, I would stop there in April 2014 when they've, first started cutting down trees on the sand valley property and i was kind of wiggled my way into the the small group that picked the second course the mammoth dunes course the 15 of us who walked all three routings for that one so that was kind of fun we really had much to do with lido um other than i am going to be a found you know member there not a founding member but a member um so i'm looking forward to playing you know essentially a charles blair mcdonald course and you know i have a house five miles away and just, i think it'll be it'll be great I'm just excited about just the ability to play that kind of a style of golf course up there. Yeah, it'll be a nice compliment. You know, and seeing Peter's involvement, Peter's way way more involved than than I am, and he's taking I, it from his passion about golf and looking at the old pictures of the Lido to create a a golf video game that then they turned into a an inch by inch routing map of the 130 acre golf course. And then my buddy, I know Craig Halton pretty well, and they're they're doing most of the build, and Doak's going to finish it and. So you, you don't be excited, recreate, yeah. You don't recreate a hundred year old golf courses on your computer. I don't. Uh, In my mind, I do, but not, <laughs> I don't have that ability. No. P- Peter's going to be when, when that opens. Peter's going to be back on the show to to give us the rundown okay, on that. That good. fascinates yeah. me as well. Yeah, it's just it's kind of crazy, but I think it, you know what it does tell you is doing the proper historical research and understanding what was there originally can benefit a lot of clubs. I, that's one takeaway I might have from this kind of process is it's possible to do this. You can go back like a Wakanda could go back. They have the original routing plan. You have old aerials, you have, you know, with a few photos, you can go back. Maybe you can't recreate the greens to what they were, but you could go to greens that we know are original Langford greens. You can laser map them now and use a GPS bulldozer to create, recreate these greens to the inch or half inch. And, you know, restore the Langford that way. I think the, the technology is kind of amazing. They were adopting the latest trends in technology in their era. Why not take today's technology and apply it to what they did back then? Yeah. And it, it kind of makes me circle back to the having you on and, and the, the history that so many of us have gotten into more than than I, I don't think I ever considered myself a history buff, but it really connects me to the game in a way that I uh, didn't didn't experience until really open in the books and starting to read this stuff. And the, the internet has a lot to thank for that because right. of its accessibility. What, what would you tell, you know, there's a lot of folks that listen to our podcast that we cover other topics too, that they're not amateur historians. And, and I think they may think, why do I need to care about who built this golf course 120 years ago? I'm just here to hit a golf shot. What, what do you think is it important that they do understand a little bit of this history? Would you try to bring them into the fold? Well, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, even if your interest is just in playing golf, I think understanding what the architect, the problem the architect was presenting you with and the tricks they used to maybe uh, lead you astray um, can really help you as a golfer, I think. 
uh, understanding a little bit about how greens drain can help you read putts better. Um, I remember Desert Forest in Arizona, and we have a golf course that's built into a kind of a, you know, the foothills of, of the mountains around Phoenix, and everything kind of tilts toward Phoenix. And if you, once you know that, then you've got to read these greens. Sometimes the uphill putts really not as much uphill as you think. So I think, I know, I think understanding some of the tricks of the trade and really the strategic elements of a golf hole can help you play the golf hole better and can be rewarding. The architect wanted me to hit this shot and you pull it off. That's exciting. When, you know, I, I hit, tend to hit a, a fade with my driver. So I love the third hole at Lasonia and you can take it out 15 yards left of that big bunker and let it bounce to the right down the hill. There's a little grade there that takes the ball right and you could pass that bunker and then only have a nine iron in. And, you know, you, when you can pull off the shot that they're asking you to pull off, that makes the game more interesting and more exciting and rewarding, frankly. Well said. That's a good way to put it. Uh, lastly, I know you've mentioned the book you're working on for Chicago golf history. Uh, we do a little, we call it the bag drop live. It's a book club, but we're a bunch of, you know, golf enthusiasts that get together with our authors and talk. We'd love for you to be on that whenever, right. when can we expect it? Or is this, uh, what's kind of a published date? Well, it was, it was uh, going to be done in 2015. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to hit, give myself a hard time here because, you know, <laughs> no, I started playing like, competitive golf like when I retired and I've spent more time playing golf than working on the book for the last five years. Okay. I'm getting a little older now. Now I'm a super senior. It's getting a little harder to compete with the new crop of 55-year-olds every year. But, um, you know, I got the old M project this year. Um, I was just hired to do a book for Sunset Ridge Country Club, which will be due in a couple of years. So I'm really hoping in, in between, I was really trying to try to finish it last year, but then COVID hit. And now I've got to work on these other projects. You know, everything falls into place. Maybe I can get it done by next fall. But, you know, there's just certain things. There's still a few places I have to go to visit, find the time to fit it in with their schedules, get some photography done. Um, it's 80% written and probably 90% research. So it's pretty close, but you know, getting it down to the final, getting it to the finish line has proven a little hard for me. And it's really need to find like two months where I can just focus on that and nothing else. And my life's been a little more complicated lately for other reasons, And but we'll get, we'll get there. It'll be done. All right. Hopefully it'll, people will find it as fascinating as I do. And it's like good putting. At least a caddy in Scotland told me that good putting is like good cooking. You can't rush it. Right. So, so take your time, Dan. We're, but we're all very excited to, to dive into that book, being Chicago golfers. I think everybody will be. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, you know, talk about it maybe when it's finally done. That's right. Yeah, we'll have you back <laughs> at that time. Uh, so, you know, I think it's kind of an, it will be a, a little bit of a unique project because I don't think there are a lot of what I consider golf histories that are really just based on architecture. Yeah. How did golf come to Chicago? Who were the original architects? Who are the people? What did they know? How did they develop architecture in Chicago from really the primitive stuff to Harry Colt coming here and introducing the golden age? People like Langford, a lot of the greats worked here in the 20s. And then there were a whole group of other people that I call them the artisans in the book who made huge contributions that people don't even know who they are. So and that's kind of a part of the book I'm excited about as well. One of so, our, one of our members was chasing down Harry Collis. I don't know. if Yeah. Know. Harry Collis would be one of those artisans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have one more thing for you before I let you, I almost let you off the hook with this thing. I've been doing this all season long. Uh, your friend, Michael Kaiser was the first to, to help me do this. We call it the 19th soul, Dan. Okay. So it's, it's 18 questions that uh, <laughs> are adapted from Marcel Proust, the French novelist. To, but we're, we're, he was looking to find the truest nature of an individual. We're looking for the truest nature of the golfer. So they're intended to be quick answer. You could probably philosophically think about these for months on end. First thing that comes to your mind, Dan, let it fly. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question number one. When were you the happiest as a golfer? Uh, when I won the Lord Brassy Cup at the club I belong to in England, Royal St. Ports. Number two, what's the scariest shot in golf? Downhill three putter that three footer that means something. Haven't had that. Good answer. Number three, what is your go-to order at the halfway house? Uh, 
I usually just get either banana or some uh, trail mix. Number four, what is the trait you most deplore in your own golf game? Uh, that I talk to myself too much and get mad at myself. Number five, what is the quality you most look for in a playing partner? Good, re- good, good, good green reading ability to complement my lack of it. <laughs> Hence the drainage. Uh, number six, what is the trait you most deplore in other golfers? Um, slow play. Common answer. Warn, those be warned. Number seven, what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course? I don't know if I can say them publicly. <laughs> Our imaginations will, will take the rest. <laughs> no, no, let me think. Um, I'll come back to it. Number eight, what golfing talent would you most want to have? Um, Better green reading ability. Number nine, what is your most treasured golf possession? Hmm. I don't know if I, you know, there's a lot of things. Um, I have a a club that my father-in-law, my late first wife, gave me that David McIntosh it was a David McIntosh Glen Oak Club. And he didn't know he was giving it to me. I didn't know at the time what it was. But then I, later I found out that David McIntosh was the guy who taught Langford to play golf. So wow. it's kind of a neat club. That's... It's not really a playable club, but it's a cool club to have given the he was a he was a caddy master at Lake Geneva Country Club. That's where he got it. So that one's gonna I, I like that one. That's a that's a prize possession. Number 10. What's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out? Um, got about 40 ball markers. If I could get down to the bottom of the bag, I think I would throw all of them out. (laughs) Um, yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) I don't, I don't have much in my bag, frankly. (laughs) Well, you're a walking golfer. We don't. Yeah. Number 11. What is your favorite occupation at the golf course? Um, the starter. Or maybe the guy who cuts the holes in the morning. That's what that's really one of my secret life objectives is to become the guy who sets the whole the hole positions in the morning and cuts the holes. So there you go. I'm gonna go with that. Number 12. Have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph? No. Interesting. Number 13, what historic this is a good question for a historian. And I think we all know the answer, but what historical golf figure? do you most relate to? Well, given our topic today, Langford, but um, yeah, I think that's that's got to be my answer. Yeah. yeah I, can't, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you can go anyone else. That'd be tough. Uh, no, I mean, I like Harry Colt a lot too. So you know, played a lot of his courses in England and just made tr- tremendous contribution to number, golf. Number 14, what is your, what is your greatest golf regret if you have one? I think that um, not a regret so much as, you know, because I didn't play a lot of golf during my working years. I had kids and I was working and traveling a lot. And I mean, I kind of wish I'd started playing competitive golf before I was 59 years old, 60 years old. You know, I think I probably could have done pretty well. Yeah. But life is life and you, you go with what you got. Number 15, uh, do, do you have a, what's your favorite golf book? Um, I probably, you know, got to look at my bookshelf, which is behind me here, in front of me here, actually. Um, there's so many of them. Um, I guess I go with the World Atlas of Golf because that was the one that got me started. The original one with the little hand drawings of the golf courses all over the world. I just remember, you know, my 20s looking at that thing all the time and kind of just really started my interest in golf architecture. You still recommend it for people just getting started? Yeah, and there's newer editions, but sure. Yeah, I think it's a cool book. Number 16, this is always an interesting one, but uh, what is your least favorite hole in all of golf? <laughs> well, I'm going to go with the courses I play the most, the, probably the 18th hole at Desert Forest. It's It's the finishing hole. It's a tough hole, but... They've lost the fairway on the right that Red Lawrence initially intended to be like the main landing area. 
And often you hit a good shot that ends up running into the desert under a cactus, even though you've hit a good shot. So then it becomes a front. If you, if you finish your round with a bogey or double bogey and you hit a good shot off the tee, that's to me is not the best way to finish a golf course, go finish a round. And some improvements to that hole would really help, I think, in terms of allowing a lot of people to enjoy their experience there a bit more. It's always a very personal response to that right, question. Right, right. No, I mean, that's what it, that's the question, right? <laughs> that's what it's there for, yes. But you're thinking of others, which I like that right. about you, Dan. Number 17, if you had one song to listen to uh, for your golf game or on the golf course uh, for the rest of your life, what song would it be? Uh, well, I'm a big jazz fan. It would probably be something by some, some improvisation by Sonny Rollins. Um. Right. Particular song that I really like, Moratat from Saxophone Colossus. Colossus. Right, okay. We're gonna we're gonna have some fun with those these answers uh, in the future. I that's that's one we have not had. Not a lot of jazz. Okay. Mm -hmm. And finally, Dan, for you, the last question, number eighteen. If you had a motto, maybe you do. What would it be? Don't have one, but uh, kind of been thinking that I should either you know like to be the uh, meandering golfer, just meandering through the, the whole history and experience of golf. That's kind of like what I like to do. Uh, we'll call it the meandering golfer. We're happy that you meandered your way onto the bag drop today, Dan. Thank <laughs> you so much for the chat. Uh, all of us that are already big Langford fans, I think we got a lot out of this conversation and um, we're looking forward to your Chicago golf book. Uh, to, to future conversations with you. And we just wanted to thank you for the time. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. And thanks for what you're doing. It's a great contribution to the game we all love. We appreciate that. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The backdrop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. Journeyman Distillery is the official partner of this year's summer medal at Sand Valley and Lasonia. Golf and whiskey go together like, well, the perfect twosome. My favorite is their Silver Cross. It's a name that hails from the medal given out at the early days of the British Open. This medal would later come to symbolize friendship, tradition, camaraderie, and spirited competition. In that same spirit, Journeyman has created a tradition they call Four Grains for Golf, donating 1% of all sales from Silver Cross whiskey back to the various golf charities and organizations that teach kids the game of golf. It instills in them its core values. Kids play free on Welter Follies 30,000 square foot real grass putting green. Not kidding, it's huge. Modeled after Himalaya's putting course in St. Andrews, Scotland. Journeyman has been distilling artisan spirits for a decade in their historic feather bone factory located in the one stoplight town of Three Oaks, Michigan. They are grain to bottle, produce certified organic, kosher, and gluten-free award-winning whiskeys. And you can check out their full portfolio of spirits at journeymandistillery.com.